0: Hey everyone, it's the 4th of August, 2023. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This podcast is about vegetarians, veterinarians, and very hot hospitals. What do you think about that? Let's start off with a German study, actually the rabbit registry you know about the rabbit registry it's a biologic registry they've done a lot of work on biologics in RA they have registries also in PSA and SPA in this particular study of almost 2,500 patients looking at SPA and psoriatic arthritis they looked at depressive symptomatology they found moderate symptoms of depression in uh, 8% and 21% with severe symptoms of depression Sounds like depression may be under-recognized amongst the spondyloarthropathies. These were associated with fatigue, not not engaging in sports, and greater functional limitations. Clearly, the point here is, one, we don't usually deal with this. Two, it can have a significant effect on disease activity and quality of life. Three, what are you going to do about it, Skippy? I mean, again, we've talked before about we probably should be doing depression surveys. Short, eight question, three question, do you or do you not have depression um, questions on the survey form that you use? I would strongly urge you to go down this path. It's a big player in all of medicine, especially in our diseases. Another study on enclosing spondylitis, for, it's kind of small, 40 patients, followed prospectively. All patients had um, cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and SI films. And these patients, they looked at the incidence of intervertebral fusion. And, you know, I've always said that spondylitis begins in the SIs and it marches its way up meaning you don't have spondylitis, and it just jumps right up to the neck and, uh, and passes everything else you know, um, along the way. There may be cases like that, but they're not, it's not the rule. Well, this particular study, albeit a small study, says that the most common sites of intervertebral fusion um, were the posterior vertebrae and middle thoracic uh, um, vertebrae. So the posterior and middle thoracic region was number one found in 50% of patients. Next most common was, in fact, cervical. And least common was lumbar intervertebral fusion. So, it's a little departure from my my common thinking. Uh, The most commonly fused was um, thoracic uh, T4 to T5 and T7 to T8. Again, it's a head-scratcher for me, but I like learning new things. Uh, Who gets hip fractures? People who eat meat. People who eat fish. People who don't, who don't eat anything but vegetables. People who don't eat. Well, the, uh, a study, a UK large, very large UK biobank study compared over 200, it looks like actually almost 400,000 people who eat meat to 10,000 who eat fish and to 7,600 who eat vegetarians. turns out vegetarians have a 50% higher risk of hip fracture, Compared to regular meat eaters, people eat regularly. That's about 250,000 people. The point being here is why does diet confer fracture risk? Some of that may have to do with BMI differences, but not all of it. Only about 28% of that difference was, in fact, due to um, a lower BMI in people who are vegetarians. So, you know, you are what you eat, uh, and that sort of applies here. So that might be something you might want to discuss with your um, vegetarian patients. Uh, a study looked at dermatomyositis patients with the MDA5 autoantibody. I don't know if you're familiar with this, these people have rapidly progressive lung disease. They have very distinctive skin lesions. They often, um, uh, they present very differently. There's a high mortality risk. In this particular study, they found that um, the markers of high mortality was, again, rapidly progressive interstitial lung disease. row 52 autoantibodies and being over age of 57. This is a study of 126 uh, MDA5 positive dermatomyositis patients. I've seen these patients. This is not just a Southeast Asia phenomenon. Um, And yes, the patients I've seen did badly and died. So identifying these people with... More aggressive autoantibody testing probably makes some degree of of sense, especially if you can recognize the syndrome. An interesting Hong Kong study looked at um, cardiovascular risk with steroids uh, and notably found that low doses of prednisone, under 5 milligrams per day, did not confer an increased risk of cardiac events, especially MACE. So, again, 2,200 RA patients, uh, over 100,000 patient years, followed for over 8 years, 7% developed MACE. And the MACE um, uh, risk was increased by 7% per month when they were taking 5 milligrams a day or more. We certainly know that MACE increases the risk of cardiovascular events, right? So, what else? Study of veterans. This is a comparison study of vets. Medicare patients and Medicaid patients, 73,000 in all, was they were matched 1 to 10 with non-RA patients, and they looked at the risk of aortic valve. Now, I don't even know why you would do this. We don't typically think RA patients have an increased risk of aortic valve disease. But in this study, comparing RA patients from the VA, Medicare, Medicaid, so it's kind of all age groups, it's both sexes, Uh, Matched with a non-RA, matched population, RA patients have an increased incidence incidence of aortic stenosis, a 48% increased risk. They have a 34% increased risk of aortic valve surgery and a 26% increased risk of aortic valve-related deaths, usually related to aortic stenosis. I was not aware of this problem. How common is this problem? It's not that common. It's about four cases per 1,000 patient years. So uncommon, I don't know about it. So uncommon, I don't know if I should be screening for it. But maybe I should take my auscultatory exam more serious and listen, you know, AS murmur is not hard to miss, right? So time listening to the chest. With that thing, you know, that goes in your ears, it's got a little diaphragm at the end of it, It, it funny sounds, uh, makes you a better diagnostician, let's use it. Uh, we are aware of the phenomenon of immune-related adverse events associated with the immune checkpoint inhibitors um, and that um, a minority of patients do get musculoskeletal disorders, including synovitis that looks like RA and like PSA. This one study of twenty patients um, with RA who developed RA and PSA-like disease uh, owing to an immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy for cancer um, were studied with um, flow cytometry and a number of other studies looking at um, uh, PBMs taken from those patients' peripheral blood mononuclear cells. They found that um, there was clonal expansion of CD8. T-cells that are probably dominant here that you don't see in other RA and PSA patients. These T-cells are notable for being CD38 high and CD127 negative, suggesting a specific subtype, and that this subset actually is also associated with an increase in secreting uh, type 1 interferons, which we know are also very autoimmune promotional, if you will, so it's they're working out sort of the mechanisms by which you can get uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor-related uh, inflammatory arthritis, and that may, in the future, um, tailor some of our therapies. Currently, I don't think it does. A new study looked at um, a new B-cell-targeted therapy called uh, Obexilimab, o- O-B-E-X, Obexilimab, Obexilimab. O-B-E-X-E-L-I-M-A-B, obexilumab, map you know, we could spend them, let's, let's turn this into an English for Rheumatologists um, podcast and see how that comes out because the Rheumatology podcast is not going too well today. But nonetheless, an interesting paper in Arthritis and Rheumatology, a Phase 2 pilot trial of this. A bifunctional monoclonal antibody. The monoclonal antibody is bifunctional and it targets CD19 and FC gamma receptors. Um, it is a non cytolytic monoclonal antibody and specifically it goes after B cell, plasma blasts, etc. Um, 104 patients um, and basically the placebo population had a 28% response. The OBE patients had a 42% response. This was significant uh, and was associated with um, depletion of B cells in the circulation uh, and changes in gene expression, etc. Pilot trial showing another way you can go after B cells in lupus. Um, there was some infusion reactions, but it looked like it was well tolerated. So it was an early uh, entry agent. This is promising. But again, it's early phase two. And in lupus, a lot of things look great in phase two. But a win is a win. Congratulations to those investigators. A Spanish study um, of 518 lupus patients looked at who gets rituximab um, and um, bulimimab. And in their 518 patients, a total of about 37 patients got either or. 26 got rituximab, 11 got belimumab, And the question is why? What are the indications? So overall, only 7% received these B-cell targeted therapies, maybe that's a little too low. It's hard to know uh, without knowing more about the profile of patients. Nonetheless, rituximab was mainly given for either hemolytic anemia or uh, immune-related thrombocytopenia related to their lupus. Um, They also received, that was 11 patients, five patients received um, uh, rituximab for uh, problematic nephritis and or neuropsychiatric disease. Belimumab was mostly used for patients with arthritis. That's 8 out of the total 37. Um, it's kind of the issue with B-cell directed therapies. Who should get them? Uh, you know, I think most of us are using B-cell directed therapies when other standard therapies fail. I think there's got to be a better, smarter way of choosing, especially biologic therapies in lupus. That looks like a good research project for a fellow a retrospective analysis of uh, almost 2,000 patients with GPA um, on rituximab found that only 23% received prophylaxis against PJP using trimethoprim-sulfamethoxazole. As you know, um, P, you know prophylaxis against PJP pneumocystis. Um, is probably recommended in GPA patients, one, because of the disease, two, high-dose steroids, and three, the use of rituximab. Also, rituximab, regardless of the indication, is probably an indication for use for, again, prophylaxis. Um, Only 23% here received it for a median of about 150 days. Uh, Use of the prophylaxis was more likely in those receiving um, prednisone, methotrexate, ICU care, uh, hospitalization. Again, it's something that really should be considered, so spread the word in those patients. Two more uh, reports, antenatal steroids causing serious infections in the offspring of such patients. This is a a very large study, almost 2 million pairs of pregnant mothers uh, and their singleton offspring. And of those, uh, they found 45,000 in whom the mother received steroids prior to birth. Uh, at least one course. And then they follow the children and their outcomes out. Uh, and this is a Taiwan uh, claims data matching multiple claims data sets together. They follow the children at, you know, multiple time periods, inclu- including 6 and 12 months, and showed overall the children who were exposed to steroids in utero had a significant increase in um, serious infections, a 32% increase and that included sepsis, pneumonia, and, and gastroenteritis. At 12 months, it was still significant for serious infection, sepsis, pneumonia, and gastroenteritis. So maternal steroids during pregnancy does impose a risk, not just to the mother, but also to the unborn child, worth noting. This week, again, the um, annual report from U.S. News and World Report on the best hospitals in America listed the 2023, 20, 24 best rheumatology hospitals and the top five or six did not change uh with Johns Hopkins being the leading candidate and they've been the leading um rheumatology hospital for a number of years now uh and followed by um in New York uh Hospital for Special Surgery paired with Presbyterian Columbia, Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Brigham and Women's in Boston, rounding out the top 10 the Massachusetts General in Boston, UCSF, in San Francisco, NYU Langone Medical Center in New York, UCLA, UCLA Medical Center in LA, and the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Congratulations to those faculty, those doctors, those institutions for all their hard work. I want to revisit last week's Ask CUSH" Anything About Injecting Subcutaneous Nodules. If you notice at the end of that podcast, it kind of stopped abruptly. Well, that's my fault the phone ran out of juice. And, and, and who knew? But it did likely or nicely end at the end of a sentence. So let me just sort of complete that that story. And if you didn't didn't hear it, the question that we posed, because it came in as an Ask Cush Anything, um, and we also posted it as a Twitter poll, was um, what is your effective treatment for rheumatoid nodules? And, and I basically said nothing works. You know, very few of you are using... Um, injections, and very few of you are using um, surgical removal. So I did a Twitter poll, got over 300 votes on this. Um, 8% of the Twitter doctor audience said they use steroid injections, and that's perinodular, sometimes into the nodule, some people like. some uh, 9% said they have used surgical removal. My opinion is that they come back and high risk of infection. Many of you said 50 percent. You <laughs> disease control is the way you control nodules. Sadly, that proves not to be true, um, based on evidence and and numbers of cohorts, uh, fairly large cohorts. And then a third of you, like me, thought deep down nothing really helps those nodules. And people have it. We can sometimes describe it to methotrexate and whatnot. I got an interesting email from um, Dr. Marty Farber in New York. He said um, he liked the comments and, and, and whatnot, um, but um, he had to disagree, and actually, and appropriately said, when that when he heard me say, in my experience, I believe that's when the antenna goes up, and Marty says, I can't help responding to your pessimistic take on the therapy for nodules. I've been injecting them with Triamcinolone suspension for many years with good results. The last patient I treated reduced her PIP ring size from a a 9.5 to a a 7.5 in two weeks based on nodule reduction. Um, It can be difficult to force the suspension into the nodules, especially when they're very dense, but by changing the depth and the angle of the needle, he usually uses a 25 gauge. This can help. So he has a very positive take on that. And, And I told Marty, there are papers that say nodule size is often changed and improved by steroid injections. But... My problem was that most of us don't do it. Second, there's not a good protocol for doing it. Third, do you just do it perinodular or should you go right into the nodule and go for the gusto? Again, I think there's a lot to be known here. Um, we probably should have a town hall meeting on this to see. It's a really common problem. A third of patients have nodules and, uh, and it's highly bothersome to patients. My problem with steroid injections and surgery has been... Um, complications in return. And so uh, I like it when patients have fast responses to these kind of things. I don't like it when it comes back eventually and there's, you know, six months or a year later, we're still dealing with the same issue. I want to bring to your attention two things on the website. One, a new thing you'll find called Poster Hall. You can go to Poster Hall and see pivotal trials that have been recently published and you can Uh, They often have multimedia presentations with voiceovers and videos that explain the poster. I think you'll find those interesting. And lastly, I would recommend that um, uh, you send in your questions or cases to Ask Kush Anything. Click on the box um, on the website or on the email and record your question. Or send me an email. Whichever is best. I'm so glad we didn't run out of time. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll talk next week.